The scripture reading for this morning is uh, Ephesians 5, 3 through 21. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as it is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as the wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk on wine, uh, but that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything that got to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Thanks be to the word of God. I want to just say again, follow up from what we saw earlier from Trunk or Treat, and just say thank you to those of you who were there and uh, gave your time and energy and effort and money and candy um, just to make it a, a wonderful event. So thank you for those of you who jumped in. Thanks especially to Sean Brown, who ran with so much of the details. So if you see her, say thanks to her as well. And um, this is a joy serving with you all. It's, it's a fun night being together, loving on people, and giving away a bunch of candy. So thank you. Um, hope you enjoyed that as well. And it was fun seeing the video as well. Um, we are in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. So if you've not already turned there, I invite you to turn there now in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5. You know, in, a, in John Bunyan's classic novel, The Pilgrim's Progress, it tells the story of a young man whose name is Christian, and he flees his home and is headed toward the celestial city, the, the home of the king. And along the way, he acquires a companion named Faithful, and they come through a town called Vanity, as all passerbys must. And at the heart of the town called Vanity lies the Vanity Fair. Now, this is a fair that goes on year-round, and year after year after year after year after year. 
And what happens in the Vanity Fair is that there's all sorts of merchants who are selling their goods and all the allurements of the world. And the goal is to kind of ensnare and trap the passerbys headed for the celestial kingdom to kind of just stick around and engage with all the worldly things. And so Christian and faithful enter into the fair, and they uh, are very obviously distinct. They're wearing different clothes and and act and speak differently. And so the the merchants all come up to them and say, hey, you you want to indulge in these things? And Christian and faithful say, no, we're we're good. We're only interested in the king and his truth. And that answer doesn't fly. Um, And so um, the two travelers are arrested, put on some sham trial, and faithful winds up um, executed. And as is the tale of, so, as is so much of uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And I think there are few passages, chapters of that book, more pertinent and relevant to our context than the Vanity Fair. A age-old thing that attempts to seduce us with the, the, the ways and wonders of the world and keep us from headed on to the celestial city and the joy of our king. See, in the passage this morning, Paul is talking about uh, how we are to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called, how we are to follow after the great king, our God. And specifically, he's going to talk about sexual immorality and the enthrallments that come with that, the indulging of pleasure from the world and how we can keep walking in the way of the king And so he's going to warn us before showing us how we ought to walk. This is something every believer in Jesus Christ traverses through. We navigate the ways of the world. We navigate the sinful desires and um, context of our culture, but also of our own hearts. And so it's important to keep in mind these things as we enter in. And we'll see two ways in which we are to walk this morning. And the first is that we are to walk in the light. We are to walk in the light I want us to back up and get the the fuller context of what's going on here. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we read these two verses last week because they really kind of go together with the text we read a week ago, but it flows very naturally into where we are looking this morning. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then, right after that, verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. So there's immediately a contrast going on between those first two verses and what happens then in verse 3, which is interesting for us to stop and note because so much of our world and our culture defines love and sex as virtually synonymous. And yet here it says, walk in love, but avoid sexual immorality. We think that uh, saying to someone that they cannot or should not have sex with the person whom they want to is the same thing as telling them they cannot or should not find love, that you are keeping them from that which their soul most desperately and deeply longs for, which can be very painful and powerful. So if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you're probably thinking, well, here we go again. This is intolerant, and they're just trying to keep me from being happy. It's an outdated message, and it likely stems from heartbreaking experiences that you have personally with people, Christians, who have not walked in love in the way of our Savior. And these are painful times. And you 
I want you to realize that it's not so much that Christians want to keep you from finding love, it's that Christians define love in a different way. And you say, well, what gives you the right to define love? Who gets to define whom I can and cannot love? Who gets to define that? See, Christians believe there is a God who made everything. And that this God is the one who designed human beings, and this God is actually, in the Bible, defined as love. And so we believe that this God is the one who gets to set the terms on what love actually is and what it looks like. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I hope that, what, what, that you'll open, uh, be at least open to seeing this God who is love and saying, is he really real and is he really love? I hope you'll keep listening. And as we recognize this passage about sexual immorality is predicated by the exhortation to walk in love, it means that any sort of sexual sin, whether that's cheating on your spouse or having sex outside of marriage, engaging in a homosexual encounter, watching pornography, or even lusting in our hearts, among other things, is actually not loving. You go after those things thinking, well, that's, that's where I'm going to be satisfied. That's where love is going to actually be met, but it is not the case. The Bible says, actually, that is not love. The way to walk in love is to avoid those things. Sometimes we think all I'm looking for is love, and so we just go looking for sex to fill it. But I think it is wisely said that sex is not nothing, nor is it everything. It is not nothing, which means it's worth safeguarding, and we cannot allow unhindered sexual expression and experience as if it doesn't matter at all whom you sleep with. And listen, all of us agree on that. All of us agree there should be different safeguards and, and rules in place against these things. For example, all of us agree that there should be rules and laws in place against unconsensual sex. We all agree on these things. The, the, the question is, who gets to define those terms? Is it human beings or is it God? But neither is sex everything. Our world today says that central to who we are as human beings, wrapped up in our very core and our very identity, is our sexual expression and freedom and identity. Such that to deny someone's sexual expression is to essentially deny their very selves, which is why it really is a non sequitur to suggest to someone, well, I love you, but I don't love the way you express yourself sexually, because to people in our context, in our Western modern ideals, that's essentially the same thing as telling them, I love you, but I don't love you, because of how intertwined these things have become in our identities, which means we have to recognize that the Bible says sex is not everything. And so we will never actually be on the same page as long as sex is seen as the core of what it means to be a human being. There are more important things than sex, believe it or not. See, Christians believe that the most complete and full human being to ever live and to ever walk the planet lived a life of complete celibacy. He never had a single sexual relationship nor encounter, and he never once lusted after anyone in his heart. He never had an impure thought, and he is the one whom Scripture defines as being love. And so if we are to walk in love, we are to follow his example, which is why verse 1 says, be imitators of God. And then verse 2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The only way we will know what love really is, is if we look to Jesus. And so we'll see what he calls us to this morning, but more than that, I hope that we see him high and lifted up as our only hope. And so in verse 3, we read this, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be, be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, 
but instead let there be thanksgiving. What we first see is Paul is defining for us what is sexual immorality. What does he have in mind here? And he actually gives us two different lists of three things. The first list is this. Sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness are things that should not even be named among the saints, for they are not proper. And saints here is referring to all believers. Now, sexual immorality is used in the Bible as kind of a catch-all term for any and all sexual behavior that goes against God's ways and God's commands, which is any sexual behavior outside of a marital relationship between a man and a woman. Impurity is, in general, uncleanness, but I think here is referring to a specific sexual uncleanness. And then covetousness is greed, so it's desiring what does not belong to you and wanting it. And uh, I think here again, there's a sexual connotation to it in the sense that uh, you are desiring other people and their bodies in a way that objectifies them and it takes or seeks to take that which does not belong to you. And Paul says, these things, these things should not even be named among you. Well, does that make this sermon hypocritical? Well, I don't think so because Paul actually says these things here. I think what he means is this is a way to go to the extreme of expressing how serious this thing is, which is why some of your translations might render this, there should be not even a hint of these things among you, which I think is a good way of getting at what he's really looking for. We should take these things seriously. And then there's a second set of sins that he mentions, and these are filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. He says these things are out of place. These three are getting at our words, what we say, how we talk about others, what we say when we're around other people, and what kind of humor we find funny. For example, I've been around plenty of professing Christians who wouldn't even think about cheating on their spouse or clicking on that website on the computer, and yet when they're around other people, the things they say, the jokes they make, it's, well, just what you're doing with, with the guys, right? Locker room talk. And Paul says, those things are out of place among you. Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Christians are people who should laugh a lot and be filled with great joy. But what we laugh at, the humor we indulge in, does reveal the state of our hearts. And it also does subtly shape the state of our hearts. And we are called to avoid these things because they are out of place. He says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. It's interesting that he says... Be thankful here as a contrast to the filthy talk that comes out of our mouths. It's not the last time the theme of Thanksgiving will show up in our text this morning, so we'll come back to that in a moment. But it's interesting that he notes this as a sort of contrast. So don't talk this way, but instead be thankful. This filthy talk is corrosive to the soul, but Thanksgiving often can be life-giving. Which means if you are struggling... And having trouble stemming the tide of the crude humor that you revel in, perhaps one way to fight it is to train your mind to be thankful over and over and over again, to focus on the things that you have to be thankful for and see how that begins to subtly shape your perspective. Now, these are the things that Paul condemns, but you say, well, why should we avoid these things? Why should we avoid sexual immorality? Let's pick it up in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, which, by the way, that's the very same as the first list he gave, and now he says, if you covet, you are an idolater, because that which you want has become your idol. 
He says, this person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Sexual immorality is a big deal. In fact, it's a matter of life and death, the Bible tells us. The Bible says if these things mark your life, you will not be in the kingdom of God. If you stick around at the vanity fair and indulge its pleasures, you will never make it to the celestial city. The fight against sexual immorality is a fight for life and death. Now, what is in mind here is the repeated, unrepentant, habitual sins that has become controlling and enslaving in a person's life. Christians tragically do sometimes still sin sexually, and sometimes in a great manner, like King David did. But if sexual sin has mastered us, if it is unrepentant, it calls into question our profession of faith. If sexual sin is domineering and there is no hint of genuine repentance in our hearts or growth or desire for growth, it's a very dangerous place to be. And so Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. And there are many today who would still do so. People say, well, God is loving. How could he ever send someone to hell? How could God speak out against this relationship that feels so right to me? Does he just not want me to find love? But these words are deceptions and obscure the truth that the God who is love will pour out his wrath on all evildoers one day. And these things are not at odds for it is actually God's love that drives his wrath. All of us want sin to be punished. When a loved one is wrong, do you want justice? And there will be justice. God, who is the great judge, will, will um, judge all evil and wickedness and sin. Because he is first motivated by his own glory, he will judge any wrong and offense against him, which is all sin. And because God loves his people, he will judge any and all sins against one another. This is very serious. He will pour out his wrath for all of eternity on those who transgress his ways. And the way that we talk about this reveals that we really have no clue what it actually is. We say things like, well, I had a hell of a time the other night. That was a hell of a game. And it really reveals that we have no clue what we're talking about because hell is the place where those who are opposed to God will suffer eternal judgment of God. And those who persist in sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, so, well, how do we avoid sexual immorality then? How do we avoid these things? What hope is there for us? Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, the Bible says you were darkness. It doesn't just say you were in darkness. It's saying, no, that was your identity. You were darkness. You were obsessed with it. You were, you were inundated with it. But now something has happened. There's been a change in your heart. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And you say, there's hope. Because now you are light. And you say, well, how does that happen? Does that mean Christians just somehow are able to get their sexual urges under control? Just have different desires? Certainly not. The answer is not something within us, but something outside of us. See, in the Old Testament, years before Jesus was ever born, it says this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so when John speaks of the birth of Jesus, he says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. When he was an adult, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
A few chapters later, he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. See, this is the story of the whole Bible, that we are walking in darkness. Ever since the very first sin, we're walking around, we can't see, we're stumbling our way through things. We are darkness, which is a way to describe us in our sins. But do you remember that great scene in the two towers where the the heroes of Middle-earth are pinned back in Helm's Deep and Saruman's armies of men and orcs are marching forth and all hope appears lost and they remember what Gandalf said, look to my coming at the first light. And so they march forth and they one last heroic stand and as the light breaks off, they see the great wizard on his white horse and he has come to turn the tides and the Bible says that is the case. The Bible says, look to the light, look to the coming of the light and when you see him, everything will have changed and Jesus rides forth as the light of the world. And the Bible says the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as the light of the world, Jesus came to die for his people. Because all who have sinned deserve the consequence for sin, which is death, and is the wrath of God upon them. God's wrath must be satisfied and sin must be punished. And so Jesus the eternal Son of God, who before the earth was ever made, covenanted with his Father to save their people, bore the wrath of God in full on the cross. It was the cup Jesus spoke of in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cup he had to drink of was the cup of the wrath of God, and he drank it down to the very last drop. So that those who believe in him will not incur the wrath of God on that last day, but will instead stand perfectly spotless, blameless, and pure in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. We are saved by God, from God, and to God. He is the one who saves us, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are saved from His wrath, and we are saved to know Him and enjoy Him, which is the essence of eternal life forever. And that is why there is such hope for the sexually immoral, which, by the way, is every single person in this room. The hope is this, that the one who never sinned sexually, the one who never looked at a woman lustfully, the one who never objectified a single person, he obeyed in our place and bore the wrath of God that we deserve, a burst of light into the darkness. And he calls us to himself and says, all who believe in me will be saved. This is what happened to Augustine. Outside of the biblical authors, There is perhaps no one who has cast a larger shadow on the history of Christianity, no more influential figure than Augustine of Hippo, who was a bishop in the 4th and 5th centuries. But he was also a young man who burned passionately with lust. He wrote in his confessions that when he was 16 years old, the madness of lust took the rule over me, and I resigned myself wholly to it. And so for the next 15 years of his life, He rampantly indulged in the sexual desires of his heart. He gave himself wholly to it until he was 31 years old. And as the culmination of a number of things that were stirring in his heart and experiences, someone told him, hey, read Romans 13, 13. And he opens the Bible and he reads, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. And as Augustine read that text, calling him out of his sexual immorality and to put on Christ, he was saved and his life was transformed 
He left that relationship and he instead became a celibate priest and he was one of the greatest defenders and most articulate and brilliant men to defend the gospel that the church has ever known. And it is this same Augustine who said that well-known phrase, because God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. What Augustine knew, what he came to discover was that the God who made us made us so that we would find our ultimate joy and satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment in Him and Him alone. And, and that all other pleasures, however great they may be, all other earthly pleasures, all other human joy is merely meant to be a pointer to this great God and to direct us to Him. And the Bible says that because Jesus Christ has shown that light into our hearts in the gospel, we can experience the full joy of that presence forever. A more modern author than Augustine, Rebecca McLaughlin, writes this. If we take the Bible seriously, we will see that when romantic love consumes our hearts, when it makes us feel helpless, when it fills us with such joy that we can't think about anything else, and when it crushes us so cruelly that we're lying in a pool of tears, it is pointing us to something else. It is giving us a picture of the one love that can last forever, the one romance that truly does smash through death, the love that, if we miss it now, will devastate us for all of eternity. And this lover invites each of us to come to him. And she goes on to say, this is why Jesus says that there will be no human marriage in his new world. It's not because human marriage isn't good, but because it will have been fulfilled. Just as Jesus is the sacrificial lamb to end all need for sacrifice, so he is the bridegroom who ends all need for human romance. In the TV comedy, The Good Place, set in the afterlife, Cheaty worries that he won't be able to keep his girlfriend Eleanor's interest through all of eternity. And he's right. No merely human lover could. But then we aren't designed to. That role is taken by another man. That's what Paul then says in verse 8. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so Paul now gives us instructions on how do we walk in the light amidst all the sexual immorality that surrounds us on a daily basis, and that, if we're honest, so often arises in our own hearts, too. How are we to walk? We're to discern what pleases God. Now, sometimes we can actually over-spiritualize something like this, and we can think that God is elusive and he's hiding and that his will is somehow a mystery to us. That's why we speak about, well, I, just, I can't figure out what God's will is for my life. But we know the answer to that, and he has given it to us in his word. He has told us how to live a life fully pleasing to him and how to obediently follow after him, which means that when we're seeking to discern his will, for example... You don't need to sit at your computer wondering, I wonder if God's will is that I look at porn today. You know it in his word. When you're sitting there saying, well, I wonder if I should cheat on my spouse. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? He's told you in his word what to do. What we do need is to, to humbly and dependently seek to apply God's word by God's spirit to the situations of life that might be a little less clear. For example, what entertainment should you consume? When we talk about filthy talk and, f and crude joking, we must apply with wisdom this principle to say, what should we watch and look at? 
what humor should we engage in? Garrett Kell has written what I think might be the best book on sexual purity, and in it he writes this. So before partaking of any form of entertainment, consider some questions. Does this increase my affection for Jesus? Can I give God thanks for this? Can I recommend this to others? How might this stir up my flesh? And how would I know if I'm growing callous to sin? And he goes on to add, watching sensual images without conviction is not a sign of spiritual maturity, but of hardness of heart. And by the way, I've mentioned these two books by Rebecca McLaughlin and Garrett Kell, and I have, uh, I have a copy up here for the first one to find me after the service who wants to read it. I'll give it to you. Um, these books are fantastic. And uh, I think the point that Kell raises is the one that arises from this text, and it's look at the language Paul uses for these things. Look at the language here. These things must not even be named among you. These things are out of place. Do not become partners with them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Paul is throwing everything he can at us to say, get away from these things. They're going to have no part with you. Oftentimes we ask, well, what is permitted when we really should be asking what is pleasing to God? A lot of times we, we think, what is permitted? And we try to get as close to the line as we possibly can without crossing it. But all that is is legalistic purity. We want to avoid sin without any change in our hearts. But the Bible says the question is not what is permitted. The question is what's going to please God. And what's going to please God is we see what he calls sin and we run away from it. And we turn and we flee in the other direction. So we're to bring these things to light because we are no longer in the darkness, but in the light. And so in light of all of this, pun intended, Paul gives us instructions on how to live. See, walking in wisdom and walking in light is not just about sexual purity. Sometimes we in the church can make it like it's all or nothing about sex. That if you are avoiding sexual immorality, well, you're perfectly good in your walk with Christ. If you're not, well, then you're failing miserably. So sometimes to Christians, we give the impression that your entire walk in holiness, it all comes down to your sexual fidelity. But to non-Christians, we sometimes give the impression that it's only sexual sinners then who must change their way and their lifestyle and their desires to come to Christ. But that's not the case. Every person in this room who has come to true faith in Jesus Christ has had to leave their former way of life, their former desires, their former acts of unrighteousness and turn to him. In fact, if there is any person who has claimed to come to Christ without any sort of change in their lifestyle or their desires, they have not truly come to know Christ. And so we are to walk in wisdom, and Paul gives us instructions on how to do these things. Walk in wisdom. We'll read verse 15 through the end of the section here. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now he says, be careful how you walk because the days are evil. And many of you say amen to that. But notice what drives that then. 
The days being evil should drive us to holy living. Sometimes we would expect to say something like this. Well, the days are evil, so here's five steps of what to do and how to reach the culture around you, how to change it and make it more Christ-like or Christian. But, you know, there are other texts that might speak to that. But here he says, no, 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 the days are evil, so make sure you are walking in holiness and engaging with the church. It's a bit of a different flavor, and there are several implications of what it looks like to walk wisely in these days. And the first is to be self-controlled. He writes, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So by the way, sexual sin is not the only thing the Bible goes after, not even in this passage. He goes after those who are, are given to drunkenness as well. And he contrasts this with being filled with the Spirit. Now this doesn't mean that we are filled with the Spirit in the same way that we are drunk with wine. In fact, I think we see his point when we understand the contrast between these two things. When you get drunk with wine and become inebriated or any sort of alcohol, it dulls your senses and you lose some semblance of self-control. But the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So the question is, are you self-controlled? This would also extend to how we live with our bodies in terms of sexual morality, but it also uh, is with our relationship with alcohol. It doesn't condemn all drinking, but it does condemn drunkenness. And it's asking, are you self-controlled? If you have the Spirit of God in you, you will be. Second, he says to sing. Sing. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We've already done that this morning. We've already sang songs. In fact, we've sang some songs that the church has been singing for a long time. And he says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is not so much contrasting different music styles as much as it's speaking to the comprehensive nature of what we're singing. And he says, addressing one another in these things. This confronts one of our modern ideals about worship, where we can think wrongly about what it means to sing in church. We think that singing in church, musical worship, is simply supposed to facilitate an encounter between me and God regardless of what's happening with those around me. And certainly, it says here, making melody to the Lord with your heart. He is the object of all of our worship, which means that if any worship conversation starts with any other question than what is going to be pleasing to God, it is very possible we will not be pleasing to Him. We are making melody to the Lord with our hearts. So this is toward the Lord, directed to Him, but He is not the only one of you here. It says singing and making melody, right? Addressing one another. When we sing on a Sunday morning here at church, we are speaking to one another as we worship and praise God. Matt Merker pastored for a while at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C., and he now works for Getty Music, and he wrote this. This means that singing is part of each member's ministry to the whole body. When you join a church, you join the choir. You become a steward for the spiritual vitality of the body, a stewardship you fulfill by opening your mouth in song. The church member enduring persecution from his earthly family needs to hear his spiritual brothers and sisters sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. The Christian burden by shame needs to hear us exult, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Our weary hearts long to hear the gospel reverberate around us and surround sound. And we hear the voices of our fellow church members and remember that we are not in this alone. God has welcomed us into his family. 
You and I, when we gather on a Sunday morning, we are singing praises to God, but we are doing so in the body of Christ, in the family He has knit together around here, such that we are singing also to one another and saying, His grace has brought me safe thus far, and His grace that will lead us home. We need to remind one another of these truths through song. Third, he says, give thanks. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the second time in our text this morning that thankfulness is commanded. And you know, when I think of being thankful, giving thanks always, I immediately think of my mom. Those who know my mom, one of the first questions they ask is, is she always so joyful and always smiling? And they often ask, did she ever yell at you as a kid? Uh, Did she ever get mad? And the answer is yes, but it reveals more about me than her. And, uh, but it's true. Her, her joy is genuine. There's a reason she's always smiling. There's a reason she exudes the joy of the Lord. And it's because I've met no one who is more living out this verse of giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you can't be around my mom long before hearing her exclaim out of genuine delight and joy, thank you, Jesus. Maybe it's at a glorious sunset. Thank you, Jesus. It's an answer to prayer. Thank you, Jesus. It's in the course of a casual conversation when something comes up and she thinks, we've got to praise God for that. It doesn't mean that you ignore the hardships. It doesn't mean you don't grieve. It doesn't mean you call evil good and say, well, thank you, God, for that. But it does mean that you recognize the command is giving thanks always and for everything to God. You say, how do we do that? Well, Thanksgiving is this, is an acknowledgement that God is always great, He is always good, and He is always working. And because of that, there is always reason to praise Him, always reason to give thanks to Him. My mom has an awareness of this. She lives it, and she models it and passes it to our family. So by the way, parents, your kids will pick up on whether you are filled with thanksgiving and joy or whether you are filled with cynicism and negativity. We're to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And fourth, we're to submit. And you're like, let's go back to that Thanksgiving one. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, the way in which we are to be self-controlled, the way in which we sing to one another, the way in which we live lives of thankfulness, and the way that we submit to one another is because we recognize that there are others and we consider them more significant than ourselves. We prioritize their needs and wants and desires above our own. Now, this doesn't mean then that it eliminates any some, like, specific submission. In fact, the next few weeks we'll look at texts that address those specifically. So I think Paul is getting at submitting to those whom you need to submit to, whether that's family or employer or government leader or whomever it might be. But more broadly applying the principle to this, are we submitting our wants and desires and needs and saying, I'm going to prioritize one another's. I'm going to live not for myself, but for others around me. And all of this, as we've seen this morning, is what it looks like to walk in love, to walk in light, and to walk in wisdom. It's all about how we walk. Are we walking toward sin, toward immorality, toward the things that God forbids and God hates? Or are we walking toward God, who has loved us and forgiven us and saved us in Christ? Are you walking toward death and darkness, or are you walking toward light and the one who is himself light and love? 
I read an author once illustrate this from, uh, from Greek mythology. So in Greek mythology, there are um, these creatures called sirens, and they live on an island, and they make beautiful music. And so sailors passing by hear their music and are so enthralled and allured by it that they turn their ships and crash upon the island and are killed. And Greek mythology tells of two different men who successfully sailed past. And the first is recorded in the Odyssey, Odysseus. And as he sails past, he orders all of his crewmen to kind of plug their ears so that you can't listen to him, but he wanted to hear it. And so he binds himself to the mast of the ship so that he can't get free, and he begins hearing the music the sirens are making, and he begins struggling desperately to get free. He wants to head after it. He wants to run after the music, but he can't. And so he sails successfully past. And oftentimes this is the way that our Christian life plays out. We might not sin, but we sure do want to. And we struggle against it, and we fight against it. And if we could just get free, we would run headfirst after it. Garrett Kell asked, if you had an hour and you could do whatever you want with no consequences, what would you do? And that might reveal what your heart truly loves. But the Greek myths also tell us that there was another sailor who made it past. His name was Jason. And he brought along with him on this journey several talented musicians, an orchestra. And so as they approached the island, he said, begin playing your music. And so as the sirens were singing, they were drowned out by the beautiful music that was played on the orchestra of the ship, and they sailed successfully past. And that, those are myths, just tales, that nonetheless points us to what should be true of our Christian walk. It is not begrudging obedience we are after, but after hearing the beautiful music, the far greater music that is offered by Jesus Christ. I recognize that there is in him more pleasure, more satisfaction, more fulfillment than anything the world could offer. And the more we listen to his music, the more we, we hear the, the song of the gospel, the more it will grab our attention and the song of the sin and the allure of the world will begin to fade. See, there is no one, not a single person who has ever lived who will regret fighting sin. Not a single person who will regret turning from their sin and turning to Christ. Whether you're a sexual sinner or a drunkard or any other host of sins, we are all sinners walking in darkness. And the call to each one of us is to deny ourselves, to quit living for self, to quit loving darkness, and to embrace the call of Jesus Christ as our only hope. In him is light and life, and no one who comes to him will ever be cast away. No one who comes to him will ever be missing out on the most eternal, joyous pleasure that there is. That which all earthly pleasure, including sex, merely points to. Because the joy of life and the joy of eternity is knowing God. So the call to Christ might be a call to leave your sexual fulfillment. It might be a call to leave your sexual identity. It might be a call to risk being viewed as insufficient by the culture around you. It might be viewed as, as a risk of not being loved in the way the world loves or in the way that your soul most desperately wants. But it is a call to, in the process, find him which your soul truly and most deeply longs for. And he says, come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to confront us in uh, ways in which we walk and how we are out of step with you. And Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us new desires, deeper desires for you. 
that would drown out the things of the world that ensnare and entice us. Father, I pray that as we walk in these things, as we um, seek to navigate these things, walk, uh, walk in wisdom, walk in light, Father, I pray that you would keep in the forefront of our minds the glory of Jesus Christ, that his song, his music would be greater than anything that we hear from anyone else because we would be captivated by the love that you have shown us in Christ and will continue to show us for all of eternity, that which drowns out all other pleasure. Father, make us believe those things in a deeper way. Make us live those things in a deeper way. And may that be a witness to those around us that Jesus Christ really is enough. We pray this in his name. Amen.